Welcome to the Arbitration Conversation with Amy Schmitz. Welcome to the Arbitration Conversation. So in this Arbitration Conversation, we're going to talk with Professor and Dr. Pietro Ortolani. He is a professor he, at uh, Professor of Digital Conflict Resolution. He holds a law degree from the University of Pisa and a PhD in arbitration from Luis Guido Carli University in Rome. Before joining Radboud University, where he is now, he was a senior research fellow at the Max Planck Institute in Luxembourg for procedural law. He was a research associate at the University of Pisa and a law research associate at Queen Mary University of London. Pietro is admitted to the bar in Italy. He also works as a practitioner, mainly in the field of arbitration. He has experience in both ad hoc and institutional arbitration. He's acted as an expert for the European Parliament and the European Commission. Pietro has published in many peer-reviewed international journals, including the Oxford Journal of Legal Studies, the Journal of International Dispute Settlement, and the Leiden Journal of International Law. He regularly acts as a reviewer for a wide range of international journals and publishers. In 2016, Pietro won the James Crawford Prize awarded by the Journal of International Dispute Settlement and Oxford University Press. I could go on. Pietro is very accomplished um, and is just a really nice person as well. I would, had the, the great luxury of being at Radboud University last week. And I have to tell you, I'm just delighted to have Pietro as our guest because um, this is going to be a really great conversation. Pietro, welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much, Amy. You're really too kind. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to this because we're going to talk about the Facebook Oversight Board. Now, often, you know, you hear about it and you maybe think like, oh, that's Facebook, whatever. It's meta, right? Um, but it's kind of a form of arbitration, isn't it? What is no, it, the oversight board? Yeah. So what do you think, Pietro? It is a, a very unique creature in the in the field of dispute resolution. Initially, it was promoted as the Facebook of uh, Supreme Court, and people still colloquially refer to it as the Facebook or now Meta Supreme Court. Uh, it is not, strictly speaking, a form of arbitration, but it is surely a dispute resolution forum. The idea for the board was to create a body that would review content moderation decisions made by Meta with respect to Facebook and to Instagram. So content moderation means decisions to take down content that was uploaded to these platforms, but also decisions to leave up content that somebody uploaded to the platform. And initially, this was considered as a form of housekeeping, something that was necessary to keep a social network running, but not more than that, basically a bureaucratic form of practical governance of social media. And in recent years, we have understood clearly that this is a form of adjudication, that it has an impact on people's rights, on people's freedom of expression, that it often requires balancing between different fundamental rights, for example, privacy and freedom of expression, and that therefore we needed some kind of adjudication. Now, the unique uh, decision of Meta is to uh, create a special body, a special court-like structure, the oversight board, that is in charge of reviewing whether the decisions taken by the company with respect to these two social media platforms are compatible 
with the values and community standards of the company itself. So in a way, it does enforce contract just like arbitration, because of course, the community standards and the values of Facebook are binding on the users in as much as they are incorporated by reference in the contract between each user and the company. But on the other hand, the philosophy is a little bit different. It's not really about the resolution of a single dispute. It is more about uh, judicial lawmaking. It is about creating a body of precedent that can be used by Facebook to understand and develop what does it mean actually, for example, to ensure voice on Facebook or to balance voice against uh, safety or against privacy on the platform. But when we think about, well, and of course, you know, talking about procedures and sort of the goals and what, what it's looking like, especially from a dispute system design perspective, there's one catch, right? Because everybody is a bit skeptical. Um, what is the relationship between the oversight board and Meta? Yeah, this is really one of the core questions, I think. Uh, it is something that has been criticized very much, especially in the beginning. Many observers uh, noted this is basically just uh, a publicity stunt, a way for the company to acquire legitimacy and possibly deflect responsibility for difficult decisions by engaging the legitimacy of an external body that they finance and bankroll and they create themselves, right? That was the, the criticism. Now, the relationship between Meta and the board is a lot more complicated than this, in the sense that Meta, the company, uh, created a trust, uh, and the trust is uh, uh, funded with a significant budget, actually, uh, if I'm not mistaken, $130 million. That's enough to finance the operation of the board for two terms, so for six years. Um, and uh, Meta is not one of the trustees. In turn, uh, the trustees have created a limited liability company. And so the structure is as follows. Uh, Meta contracts for services with the LLC, and the LLC in turn contracts for services with the single members of the board. This is how under private law, I would say, the relationship between uh, Facebook or Meta, I should say now, on the one hand, and the board on the other hand works. In practice, there's another layer of law in there because the way in which the board works and the way in which the board protects its independence of decision-making vis-a-vis the company, vis-a-vis -vis Meta, is actually regulated by other documents that look legal in nature. And I'm referring here to the charter of the oversight board and the bylaws of the oversight board. And those, in fact, are not constituting documents of the LLC or the trust. They are documents that look legal in nature, but don't exist under private law. In fact, they belong, if you will, to a different sphere of law that determines how the board works in practice. So there are some guarantees of independence, both from the point of view of institutional design and from the point of view of private law division of labor, if you will, in between the company on the one hand, the trustees, and then the members of the board uh, at the other end. Now, is that sufficient to guarantee real independence of decision-making? Of course, that's a big question, and it's not something that you can uh, evaluate once and for all. It depends a lot on the decisions that get uh, published and right. that get issued by the board. I must say, so far, I've been surprised by how critical 
the board has been and how um, eager actually it's been to take sometimes uh, very um, controversial and critical stances vis-a-vis uh, -vis Meta. So for example, um, what has surprised you? If you could give an example, that would be pretty helpful. I'll give you two, two examples that I think are very uh, interesting for uh, all lawyers. The first one is the applicable law. So if you read the charter, the document that was drafted to kind of describe what the board would do, the task of the board was to apply the values and community standards of Facebook. That's what the mandate of the board was. And in fact, in the charter, there's a clause that says expressly, the board should not purport to apply the law. It is not a body that's supposed to enforce domestic law, unlike a commercial arbitration tribunal, for example. Now, from the very beginning, the board has not disregarded these documents of Facebook, the values and the community standards, but really the lion's share of the legal decision-making of the board has been taken by international human rights law. Every single decision of the board so far makes extensive reference to human rights standards, for example, to the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. And that's something that's not really anywhere to be found in the founding documents of the charter. And in and of itself shows a certain um, freedom and I would say uh, a bold uh, turn in the decision-making. The second element that I find uh, very interesting, I would say is one of the first decision, the decisions that the board took was about a case uh, where uh, the company itself acknowledged that they had made a mistake. So they had removed certain contents. And then before the board could take the decision, uh, Meta, at the time Facebook, uh, decided to reinstate the content because they acknowledged they had made a mistake and that was um, not uh, forbidden under the community standards of the company. Now, at that point, of course, the case would have been moot for the board in the sense that the outcome of the case and the uh, community standards actually were uh, not in conflict with each other anymore. The community standards allowed that type of content and the company eventually acknowledged that the content had to be reinstated. So if the task of the board was simply to enforce the community standards, there was nothing left to enforce, very simply speaking. And yet, in that case, it's a case that came from Brazil, the board decided to retain jurisdiction over the case, uh, basically telling the company, no, 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 you cannot moot a case by simply changing your mind. We still retain our decision-making powers. And that's on the basis of human rights law and the right to an effective judicial remedy. So from the very beginning, I would say, the board used human rights law to a certain extent to integrate, if not to subvert, the regulatory framework that Facebook had in mind when they created the board in the first place. So yeah, that's really interesting. I guess, you know, it leads me to wonder if you could just share a little bit more about what the procedure looks like. You know, how does a procedure actually work um, with the oversight board? 
Sure. I, I think the procedure is fascinating. If you look at it, it's a mix of uh, pieces of different court procedures that we are familiar with from our own national systems of law or sometimes from international law. So the board receives an enormous amount of cases. Uh, last week, the board uh, published its first annual report and they had over a million requests for review. And out of those, they select an enormously small number of cases. In 2021, they selected 20 cases to decide. So they basically focus on those cases that they think are most relevant and most likely to uh, direct the future development of the law. So from that point of view, it looks a lot like what the US Supreme Court does with the certiorari procedure. And interestingly, that's one way the board receives cases, but the other way is that Meta itself can submit requests to the board. And that looks a lot like what happens in some national systems of law where courts have the possibility or sometimes the obligation to ask the Supreme Court for binding guidance or what happens in the EU with the European Court of Justice. Right. So on the basis of that, then the uh, board will uh, conduct a procedure that doesn't have so much to do with the resolution of a specific case as much as it has to do with the development of a body of case law for the future. So in a way, it's not really online dispute resolution as much as it is online judicial lawmaking, and which makes it fascinating, right? It's a unique animal, I think, in the field of ODR. Right. But I do have to, you know, is that being a little bit charitable, I suppose, that they really are looking to develop um, some sort of body of precedent or law. I mean, is it really that sort of the most sensational or those with the most power, those who really want their cases heard, or if Meta decides that something is particularly important to them, do those cases rise to the, to the top, perhaps before the little guy who has their own claim? Yeah, the, the, you know, the big guy versus little guy is really an interesting tension for the oversight board, because sometimes they're clearly... Uh, heard cases that were high profile. The most important example has been the deplatforming of Donald Trump. Right. Um, so in, from that point of view, of course, they have an eye on what is relevant for uh, the platform also in terms of political implications and media ramification of, of, of what they do. But I must say, if you look at the cases they selected, Many times they were not about famous people or high profile cases. They were interesting examples from all over the world. So it's really a global uh, bunch of cases from different cultures and different national realities. They selected, in my opinion, to say something about what Facebook or Instagram should do with uh, their terms and conditions in the future. So the case is not necessarily per se about a famous person or about a very high stake uh, type of dispute, but the implication of the case has the potential to mean something for the little guy as well, right? So uh, from that point of view, I think the ambition is to create a body of precedent. Will it work? I think it's too soon to tell. It's too soon also to dismiss it as a publicity stunt, I think it's a fascinating work in progress and a, a space to watch, but nothing more than that for the moment.
Yeah. Well, that's good though. I mean, that's, you know, gives me hope. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that because of course, um, you know, many who have watched the oversight board have been a little skeptical wondering how this would actually play out. So, so I'm glad to hear that report. You know, it makes me think of it also in sort of the broader scheme of things, right? Because we can look at the oversight board as one example that's essentially regulating a platform to some extent. But then that brings me to wonder about the new EU law that's been proposed, the Digital Services Act, um, maybe you could explain a little bit about the DSA and how it relates to the Oversight Board. Sure. And I, I will give you my promise. I won't turn it into a really boring EU law class. But in a nutshell, the idea of the DSA is actually to codify the procedural aspect of content moderation requiring platforms to put in place certain procedural guarantees that they need to comply with to give people essentially a minimum of due process when they have a dispute concerning content moderation. So there's something that will happen within the platform under the DSA and that's mandatory and something that will happen outside of the platform. Now as far as what happens inside of the platform essentially there will be an internal complaint handling mechanism. And you could say, well, Facebook and Meta now are already more than compliant with that because they even expressly embraced this idea of, in a way, quasi-judicial decision-making with the oversight board. What is interesting about the DSA, in my opinion, is that, however, if that becomes law in the EU, the platforms will no longer be able to say we have our own Supreme Court and that's what we will follow because that's essentially our uh, highest authority when it comes to content moderation. Because in fact, under the DSA, there will be a free market for ODR, for online dispute resolution, which means in all of the member states, institutions, bodies, think for example of an arbitration chamber, will have the possibility to have themselves certified as an out-of-course dispute settlement body. And that will mean that will, they will get the possibility to hear and resolve disputes concerning content moderation, potentially overturning a decision of the oversight board, for example, and the platforms will have a legal obligation to implement those decisions. And essentially users will have the possibility to seize any of those bodies. So go wherever they want, to have their disputes resolved. So it's a very decentralized system. And it's, I think, very interesting for your listeners that are interesting in, interested in ODR and in the development of ODR tools, because since it's a free market with 27 member states where people might decide to seek certification, the question is, well, how do you do ODR at scale? How do you provide those services when there's millions of disputes every year on the topic. And in my opinion, the only solution, if we are to make this work at scale, is to give these institutions technological tools. And that will mean, of course, uh, case management platforms. It will mean interfaces. It will mean everything that Meta has developed uh, to deal with a case lot now distributed in 27 member states with so many different cultures, with so many different languages, and with the possibility for any user to choose from 
any of those uh, certified out-of-court dispute settlement bodies. I think that's exciting because typically when we talk about ODR, one of the biggest elephants in the room is what about enforcement? What if eventually the losing party, so to speak, will ignore the outcome? But if the DSA become law, well, the platforms will need to comply with the outcome. So there's a huge potential for actually enforceable ODR in Europe. And I think that's also interesting for American developers, for example. Right. Well, and then that sort of leads me to two um, questions underlying, which is number one, what are they going to count as quote unquote ODR within this DSA? Could it include online mediation, mediated settlements, or is this really, are we talking about online arbitration? Yeah, so that's a very uh, weak point of the draft of the DSA that we have so far. The requirements for accreditation are so far extremely vague. But in my right. opinion, that could also be uh, a potentially interesting thing, because as you mentioned, in this field of content moderation, well, there's a lot of different types of disputes. Some of them might be more suitable for adjudication and other ones might be more suitable for a more consensual type of uh, resolution. And eventually not all disputes about content look the same. Some of them are consumer disputes, other ones are political speech disputes, other ones have to do with the rights of minorities or religious rights and so on. And you need also different types of expertise and procedures. And probably the parties to this, these disputes want different things. You know, if there's misleading advertisements, the consumers want it deleted from the platform. If there is offensive speech, sometimes what parties really want is to be heard and to explain why that was hurtful to them. And hopefully having such a diversity of dispute resolution service providers will give people in Europe that um, uh, offer that they are looking for at the moment. My only concern, to be honest, is it does require a lot of technology for this to work at scale. And I don't see that in the at the moment available. So I'm really curious about how tech developers can help us give people that diversity of tools and probably some adjudication, some mediation, and something else in the mix for all these different types of disputes that we uh, bundle together under this broad label of content moderation. Right. I mean, because that's sort of the next question is, you know, who's going to pay for this? Because, um, you know, there's costs involved. And I'm thinking if really we're wondering what companies are going to perhaps step up. And, and of course, we do want optionality. We want to think about system design, considering the stakeholders, considering optionality. Um, that's not free. So how does this get paid for? Is this up to the platforms to pay for it? Yeah, so the DSA contains rules on this, at least this aspect is regulated, and the idea is not to make it a for-profit market. So essentially the cost of the procedure uh, cannot, sorry, the, the price of the procedure cannot exceed the costs, which means uh, essentially these service providers should not uh, make it into a business. So it's something that's ideally uh, designed for uh, non-profit organizations in Europe that want to offer this type of service for different types of content. And in cases where uh, the complainants wins, then the platforms are required to cover the costs of that procedure. Um, so that's something that you always see in 
EU law, also with class actions, for example, many people are wary about the commercialization, the commodification of dispute resolution. And they want to create enough guarantees that the procedure will not turn into a money-making machine for the private sector, right? And there's a stereotype that Americans tend to do that. Now, that's all good and well in theory. The question is, will there be enough incentives for these bodies and institutions in practice to actually undertake the enormous task of offering uh, online dispute resolution at that scale. And that is something that, in my opinion, will depend a lot on how much software will be out there, how many technological solutions will be out there, and will they be open source, at least partially? Right. Well, that's what you're going to need for something like that, because, again, the incentive structure could be problematic um, to try Absolutely. to figure out the best. Well, and it also makes me think of the ODR regulation, right? And in the consumer space, um, yeah. because once again, there was a bit of a, how do you get enough certified um, providers who can actually provide the ODR needed for this space? Yeah, absolutely. That's always the tension between the high ideals of the EU lawmaker and all these goals that try they try to achieve all at once sometimes, and the reality of economic incentives not always being there. Uh, I think in the future, all of these experience with, experiences, also with the ODR portal, will not be in vain. We have learned a lot, and we also have learned that probably... Uh, you need to be more realistic about how you go uh, about ODR. And uh, hopefully some of that will be reflected in uh, the practice concerning um, uh, content moderation. I must say, when it comes to content moderation, I'm a little bit more optimistic in the sense that, you know, one of the big problems and bottlenecks for the ODR portal, for the ODR regulation was getting traders to agree to it. And why would they, you know, maybe the incentives were not there, but with social media platforms, you have a few very powerful players that can enforce the decisions. And those ones are bound by the DSA and they must enforce the decisions of these out of court dispute settlement bodies. So that makes me a little more optimistic. I think we have learned something from the past, but what you mentioned is absolutely true. I mean, sometimes this idealistic approach of EU lawmakers really struggles to translate into uh, real life consequences at scale. Right. I do think it's exciting, though. I mean, quite honestly, I think I agree with you. I think here you have much more incentive for enforcement, which does make a make quite a bit of difference, you know, and building goodwill through proper procedures and enforcement can actually be a successful strategy for a business, including a platform, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, one exciting thing about uh, content moderation disputes, as opposed to consumer disputes, is that in a world where everything is content, all sorts of disputes, from defamation to fundamental rights to consumer, they're disputes about content. And because it's such a variegated world, it's really the world we live in, in its variety, then there's a huge window of opportunity for creating new procedures to cater to specific dispute resolution needs. They are not really met by course in today's world. Oh, so I right. think it's very exciting, but 
it's a huge challenge that maybe has been slightly underestimated by that provision of the DSA that makes it sound very easy to set up an out-of-court dispute settlement body. Right. Well, Pietro, this has been a great arbitration conversation, really interesting about the oversight board and also with content moderation more generally and the DSA and what might happen in the near future um, if this act becomes law. Um, thank you, Pietro. Thanks for taking the time with us. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this space. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast was brought to you by Arbitrate.com. For more information about Arbitrate.com's programs and content, please visit our website at www.arbitrate.com.